One of the dangers that we can have in our minds is that we will think like the world thinks. And so think that there's a stuff and times and places for God and stuff and times and places that don't really interest God. So Sundays we gather as a church. That's God time. He cares about that kind of stuff. Of course he does. And when we pray and we read our Bibles, he cares about that. When we meet as home group and do sort of Christian-y things, he cares about that. The rest of the week, well, he's not so bothered as long as you're not murdering anybody. It seems to me that's how the world often processes this thing called religion. Uh, you see it when people say, well, it's, it's something you're welcome to do in your spare time. It's lovely to have something to do for a Sunday morning. You've got great friends, but just don't bring it into to work with you. And don't inflict it upon me and tell me about it, please. Or you see it when there are laws drawn up, the laws that say, well, we get the fact that vicars need to be Christians, probably, but to be a church administrator doesn't matter so much, does it? What does administration have to do with what you believe? Well, you see it locally in this region. People get uppity about Love Oxford trying to meet on Broad Street in town because that's kind of a, a public realm, not a sacred space, it's a secular space. In the world's eyes, we have this, this God part and this non-God part, and we keep them separate, thank you. Never should they meet. And we don't help things because we kind of carve things up mentally as well. We carve up God time and non-God time. We think as the world thinks. We conform very easily to the pattern of the world. But what Paul has been trying to say is that all of life is worship. It's not right to carve these things up into different realms and different ideas, but actually all of life is worship. It's hoovering and it's dusting. It's washing up and doing the dishes and it's unloading the washing machine and it's time at work and it's travelling how we spend time with our spouse or our friends it's what we do with our leisure time all of life is worship and Paul says we have this big God this big God who is in charge of everything and he cares about everything and so he said you remember because of God's mercy we're to be living sacrifices all the time and what we'll see in chapter 13 at least the first half is that that includes how we relate to the state to the government over us. We're going to spend most of our time actually in verses 1 to 7 because we don't often get to think about these issues. It's quite an important thing for us. It's particularly relevant, I think. So we will look at the rest as well, but we'll spend most of our time in our first point, verses 1 to 7, which is worshippers submit to the government. I think there are at least two reasons why he gives that we're to submit to the government. The first one is because they have been appointed by God. Let's have a look again at verses 1 to 3. He, he spells it out very slowly and very carefully and repeats himself just to make sure we get it. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So are you a worshipper? Are you a living sacrifice? 
then you will submit to the authorities that God has put over you because they've been established by God. And the word authority, four times there in the first two verses, it is a sort of technical, legal type word, a government type word. At the time it meant a delegated authority in Rome. So it would be an authority that the emperor delegates to the local governors. And yet Paul says that's not quite right. Because there's actually another authority at the very top who then delegates. Initially, it's God. And then I take it to the emperor and to the local governors. God is the one who sets up the governors. He is the one who establishes the authorities. The government that we have today, well, voted for by the people, but actually established by God. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Do you remember in um, Jesus' trial with Pilate in John's Gospel? We looked at about a year ago on these Sunday evenings. And Pilate is getting exasperated because things are escalating and Jesus just won't answer his questions. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realise I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Even Pilate, even the the man who, who had Jesus crucified, is only able to do so because God has given him the authority. God is the one who delegates authority and therefore if we rebel against that authority, we're rebelling against him. So firstly, submit because they've been appointed by God. Secondly, because they act for justice. That is, the government is God's good provision to make the world work. That they restrain evil and they promote good. Verse 3, for rulers hold no terror to those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Verse 3. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? I remember when that hit home for me about age 8. And I thought, I've had enough being in trouble with the teacher. So I tried to be good. I remember it vividly. But he says, government officials, they are servants of God to act for justice. The word servants there in verse 4 is literally deacons. God's servants doing his will. And you only need to look at examples of where there is no government to see the outworking of sin. They're horrible places to be. So it's interesting, if you cast your mind back particularly to natural disasters, often just afterwards, you see the suffering that comes not from the disaster itself, but from the outworking of there being no structures of authority to limit sin. Think of Haiti at 2010, looting 
the rioting, the thieving that meant many, many more suffered afterwards. International aid pours in, but it's unable to be distributed. Lots and lots is stolen, the shops and the businesses destroyed. Think of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, 2005. Again, army and police are busy helping people with the floods. And so that leaves opportunity to go and loot shops and businesses. Even in Summer 11 in London and other big cities. I think someone tried to start something up in Headington by the roundabout, but it was only a bin being knocked over or something. But in London and other places, it was particularly bad when you see that the agencies that are unable to enforce the law can't do that. They can't keep law. Then anarchy breaks out. People take the opportunity to steal and to nick plasma screens and all that kind of stuff. It is a terrifying indictment on the human heart. Given the chance to sin, we do. It's terrifying. In fact, filmmakers see the terror it brings. There's a film at the moment just come out um, called The Purge. It's set in the not-so-distant future in America. I've not seen it. The trailers on YouTube were terrifying enough. But let me just read you the storyline. You see the filmmakers working on this, this fear that we have when the government's removed. So it's from the website. In an America wracked by crime and overcrowded prisons, the government has sanctioned an annual 12-hour period in which any and all criminal activity, including murder, becomes legal. The police can't be called. Hospitals suspend help. It's one night when the citizenry, citizenry regulates itself without thought of punishment. On this night, plagued by violence and an epidemic of crime, one family wrestles with the decision of who they will become when a stranger comes knocking. When an intruder breaks into their gated community during the yearly lockdown, he begins a sequence of events that threatens to tear a family apart. Now it's up to James, his wife, Mary and their kids to make it through the night without turning into the monsters from whom they hide. There is no government to intervene and the reality is horrific. And why is that? Because it's the outworking of a a world having walked out on God. In a world where I come first, then sin is real. There is this potential for people being monsters. So submit because they've been appointed by God. Submit because they work for justice. But you're thinking, where are the loopholes? What, What are the exceptions? Are there any exceptions? Do I always have to submit? What do you say to the Christian in North Korea or Afghanistan or Saudi Arabia or the Maldives for whom obeying the government probably will mean they won't be able to become a Christian or to live as a Christian? Is it okay for them to not submit? Just briefly, I take it there are exceptions. This is not all the Bible has to say about governments. So think about Acts 5. Flourishing, blossoming church. The the apostles are brought in before the authorities because they've not stopped evangelising. Acts 5 verse 27. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, "We, we must obey God 
rather than human beings. So where a government asks you to disobey God, God comes first. Similar picture in Daniel, God's people breaking laws there. Chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they will not bow to the statue. And so in they go, says Nebuchadnezzar, to the fiery furnace. Chapter 6, Daniel will not stop praying to the true God. So Darius puts him into the lion's den. Where a government asks you to disobey God, then God comes first. And that may be the situation for brothers and sisters around the world now, meeting in secret. But that's not us, is it? So what is it for you? Where does this bite in your life and in your week? Is it the driving one? It's 30 just seems so slow. Or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70, depending on which road you're on. That bit of your commute to work, where it's just so easy to sort of slide over the limit. Or we're in Oxford, so is it bikes? Who needs lights, hey? Well, the law says we do. Who cares about driving, cycling on the pavement? The law says we do. Who cares about traffic lights, cyclists? Actually, the law says we do. Maybe it's about stuff at work. It's the kind of health and safety forms you have to fill out and you just can't be bothered. Or the way that we moan about CRB checks. Maybe at home it's the MP3 downloads. Maybe it's our taxes. He spells that out in verses 6 and 7. This is why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. Paul says we can't have these two realms in our mind. We can't have this stuff that God's interested in and then stuff that he's not really that sort of compartmentalisation makes life much easier. But I don't think the Bible lets us do that. So if you're a worshipper, then you will submit to authorities because in doing so you are submitting to the God who has instituted and established those authorities. First point. A long point. Next two much quicker. Second one, verse 8 to 10. Worshippers are to love their neighbour. They see, just as we are to pay taxes to those whom we ought to pay taxes, so we are to pay the debt of love that we owe to everybody. That seems to be the link. But it's not quite as easy as that, because the debt of love that we owe to one another, to our neighbours, will always be outstanding. We can never pay it back as we ought. Do you see that? Verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. So we can never say, I'm done. Feet up. I can stop loving people now. That was pretty difficult, painful, but I've had enough of that and I can move on with life. No, no, the debt of love is always outstanding something we continue to do. We keep doing it, but in one sense we know we will never fulfil it. We will never be quite satisfied with our love. 
And then another reason to love. End of verse 8. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, murder, steal, covet, and whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilment of the law. And by that he means behind the Old Testament law, sat behind it all, it was all about loving your neighbour. Maybe he has a particular eye on the Jewish Christians in the church. Do you remember, as Daniel was teaching us from chapter 9 to 11, you've got this, this true Israel is the olive tree, and the Gentile branch has been grafted in. And so maybe the Jewish Christians are looking down on the Gentile Christians and feeling superior to them because they were the true Israel. They had the law. They had been entrusted with the very words of God back in chapter 3. And these Gentile Christians, this riffraff, they're late to the party. They haven't got the history that we've got, the heritage that we bring. But as Paul said in chapter 2, All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. And then he continues, Jew and Gentile alike are under the power of sin. As it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Together become worthless. No one who does good, not even one. So maybe he's saying, you Jewish Christians, it was always about love. It was always about love. Again, we saw it a couple of weeks ago, but it's a great reminder for us as to what being a sort of true worshipper is about, what real spirituality is about. Because it means we've got this responsibility to one another. So in one sense, it would be much easier to go and lock yourself away in a monastery to retreat and to minimise contact with people because people are difficult and difficult people make us cross and muck up our lives. But actually being a true worshipper is about how you treat others. That's difficult enough as you just think through your week. Think through that colleague who keeps making mistakes that you have to, to correct. Think about the housemate who always gets up first always has the first shower, always nicks the hot water. Think about that friend in your class who's been mean to you again and again and again. And to those situations, Paul says, love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbour. And it's hard as you think about church because we can have this sort of idealised, rose-tinted idea of what community is like. And all these people turn up and muck it up for us. It seems to me Paul has said that we have this, we have love and we have a capacity to love in a way that the world does not. We, we have known love because we know the God of love. We look back to the, to the one who loved us and who changes us and who changes our world. We think upon and gaze upon and meditate upon the one who instructs us and who gives us the example and and his spirit is at work in us Paul has said that already God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us it seems to me we are to be those who understand love 
people who are known by our love. Secondly, worshippers love their neighbour. Thirdly, very briefly, worshippers live with the end in mind. So because Jesus is coming back, so we're to change how we live now. When you know a future certainty, it will impact what you do now. Just one story to try and encapsulate some of this for you. Imagine with me Donald, the drainage dude. Sorry. Donald works in sewage. He's the guy who comes around and unblocks your drains. He's got this amazing flexible camera thing that he puts down and he can see what's going on and then he sprays water and cleans it out. He's the one who comes to tell you what that awful stench is in your kitchen. You can tell this is first-hand experience. It was tree roots, if you're wondering. Anyway, Donald the drainage dude has finally found someone who will marry him. And it's the morning of his wedding day. And it's a beautiful day. And the day before, he was scrubbed down and he was bathed and washed and soaked and perfumed. And it's fantastic. He smells amazing. And so today is the day, and it's not just that he smells nice, but he looks good too, because he's got a suit on, he's shaved, cut his fingernails, and he is on his way to church, and he is walking, and life is good. He is excited about everything, and all is rosy, and he turns the corner, and he smells a block drain. And he knows he shouldn't, but it would just take five minutes. It would be so easy. He's got the time, it wouldn't be so bad, would it? Just to pop off the manhole cover. Just jump down and have a look. Be okay. See what the problem is. He wouldn't get too mucky. He'd be fine. And Paul says to them, verse 12, put on the armour of light. Verse 14, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Don't jump back down the sewer and get covered in that stuff again. Look what's coming. This new day is almost here. So verse 12, let us put aside the deeds of darkness. Verse 13, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness or sexual immorality and debauchery or dissension and jealousy. It's, it's almost a new day. Don't think about popping off the manhole cover. Don't start to live in the old way again. Leave behind the way you used to abuse alcohol, carousing and drunkenness. Leave behind the unhelpful relationship you had with sex or with others or how you treated them badly. Maybe for us in how we look at others or how we use the internet. Dissension and jealousy is the way we squabble and we fight and we envy and we compete with each other, and it's all about me. Leave them behind. Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that's not who you are now. It's not how you do things. Don't get back down the sewer. You're in your best clothes. Put on Christ. Put on your armour, live for him. Put aside the deeds of darkness. Live with the end in mind.